Hey everybody, welcome to Talking Scripture, a podcast where we illustrate relevance and application of the scriptures in Come Follow Me. We also dive into the history and cultures of the text. Thanks for taking the time to share and subscribe to this podcast. For show notes, head over to our website, TalkingScripture.org. Welcome to Talking Scripture. I'm Mike. And I'm Bryce. And today we are going to be in section 93 of the Doctrine and Covenants that was given to Joseph in May of 1833. When he's 27 years old. This is absolutely incredible. Joseph is talking about things that no one in his day was talking about. Joseph is going to lay things out as very simple doctrines that are just unheard of in the world, about premortality of man, about how we get back to exaltation, the process of gaining salvation, priority over church and family. I mean, he is just laying some of the most significant doctrines down, and he's 27 years old, Mike. That's phenomenal. He's also answering so many questions that theologians fought over for hundreds of years, questions such as, what is the nature of God? What is the nature of man? Like, are we inherently good? Are we inherently evil? How do we answer these questions? And a lot of these things are discussed right here. Yeah, he's going to take us back to the premortal life and forward into the eternities. And the amazing thing is, you know, when the church gives us a single section to study over one full week of Come, Follow Me, that it's a landmark section. And 93 is one of those. It is one of the great gifts of the Restoration. And let me tell you why I love it so much. After having taught thousands of Latter-day Saints over the years, I've asked so many of them, do you think you're going to be in the celestial kingdom? I've tried to ask, what is your expectation? Do you think you're going to be a celestial being? And without fail, almost universally, I get hesitance. I get people answering the question, well, I hope so, or I think so, or I don't know if I'm going to be saved. And I really do believe that's because many people don't fully understand the process. They don't know how we're going to be saved. And they look at the requirements of exaltation. I have to be a being like Jesus in order to be exalted. Well, I'm nowhere close to that. And they just assume I'm never going to make it. In other words, they believe that the path is not for ordinary human beings. And most people just are a little discouraged with the thought of becoming perfect. Well, section 93 is a beautiful gift to say, you can do this. This is within every human being's reach. If you understand the simplicity of the process— then you can move forward with great confidence. And that's what I love about section 93. So let's talk about that concept. How is it that we become like Heavenly Father? Well, Jesus came to show us that very path. Section 93 is an excerpt from John the Baptist's record. Now, we don't have John the Baptist's record. In the days of the Savior, they did, because John the Beloved is going to quote from John the Baptist's record, but there's no way it could have originated with John the Beloved, because it's talking about things that only John the Baptist would have known. And clearly, it fits his role as to prepare people for the Savior. So when he says John in verse 6, we believe this is John the Baptist's record that John saw and bore record of the fullness of my glory. He talks about Jesus in the beginning. 
which John the Beloved will begin his gospel the same way, Jesus in the beginning. But I want to focus your attention starting in verse 12, 12, 13, and 14. Three simple and yet absolutely golden verses because of what they reveal. I remind everyone that the scriptures don't come pre-colored with certain verses emphasized. But not every verse of scripture is of equal importance to the Lord. So he shows us his emphasis through repetition. So watch for the repeated idea here. When he repeats an idea three times in three verses, that's his way of saying, this is really important. So verse 12 of section 93, I, John, saw that he received not of the fullness at the first, but received grace for grace. 13, and he received not of the fullness at the first, but continued from grace to grace until he received a fullness. And thus he was called the Son of God, because he received not of the fullness at the first. Three times in three verses, John points out that Jesus did not remember the premortal life. He didn't come into the world with a fullness of truth and light. Jesus started at the beginning. Now, that is fantastic news for all of us. That means he started the same place I'm starting, and therefore I can end in the same place he ended. And it's the same process for me as it was for Jesus. The Savior went grace to grace. So grace for grace and grace to grace until he received a fullness. Now, the Savior ends the record of John, and then in verse 19, he starts speaking, and he says, I give unto you these sayings that you may understand and know how to worship, and know what you worship, and that you may come unto the Father in my name, and in due time receive his, his fullness. Every one of us, the most sinful human being, can also go through this same process and receive a fullness. But we've got to do what Jesus did. And so verse 20, if you keep my commandments, you shall receive of his fullness and be glorified in me as I am in the Father. Therefore, I say unto you, notice, you shall receive grace for grace. The way Jesus started at the very beginning and went to the Father is the same process we start and will go to the Father. It's this process called grace for grace. Now, let's talk about how grace for grace works. So this is easier if we're in a classroom. I want you to picture that we're in a classroom, and I have a whiteboard behind me, and I'm going to have a graph, and on one axis, I'm going to put light. So imagine my y-axis is light, and my x-axis is obedience, because this whole process is truth or light and obedience, now, babies don't come into the world obeying any commandments. They're just innocent and simple. So let's put them at step zero in terms of obedience. But no one comes into the world without some level of light. We, we read that all throughout the scriptures, that we're all born with at least a small endowment of light. Call it the light of Christ. Call it a conscience. No one starts at step zero on the light axis. So I want you to picture... I come into the world with light A, but I haven't learned to obey. So let's put two principles together. Let's combine two gospel principles. 
Principle number one is found in section 93, verse 28. He that keepeth his commandments receiveth truth and light. So there's rule number one. If you obey, you receive light. But now let me take you back to section 82, verse 3. Do you remember where the Lord said, of him whom much is given, much is required? In other words, if you have more light, you're expected to obey more than those who have less light. So those are the two rules, and we're going to put them together side by side. So watch this whole process, grace for grace. Jesus did it. You and I are doing it. We are all born at step zero, so at zero obedience, but light A. And that light that we're born with calls to us, beckons to us, and leads us to obedience. And so as a child grows up and responds to that light, eventually that child is going to get to obedience A. Now, according to our first rule, what happens when we hit obedience A? We receive light. And that gift now puts us at light B. So I'm always one step ahead in terms of light. Because as soon as I catch up to obedience A, I get light B. And now I have more light than obedience. And that new light calls to me and beckons that I move forward. It shows me the way. It lightens my path so that I can see how to improve myself and grow a step at a time. Now, if I take that step and I hit obedience B, you know what's going to happen, right? I'm going to receive light C. And then that light pushes me to increase my obedience. Do you see that process, grace for grace? And I'm moving grace to grace, one state of grace to the next state of grace. It's a dance. It's a back and forth. Now, let me illustrate. Imagine we're together and we're in a room, a dark room with just a little bit of light. And this room represents my life. Now, with that little bit of light that I have, I can see that the furniture is a mess in my room. The chairs are turned over. The table's crooked. I have enough light to see that. So I tidy up the room. I pick up the chair. I straighten the table. I do what I can with the light that I have. Now, what's going to happen as soon as I clean up the room? the light's going to increase just a little bit. There's rule number one, that he that keepeth the commandments receiveth truth and light. Now I can see more in the room. The room is brighter. I have clarity that I didn't have before. And now with the added light, I see that the pictures on the wall are crooked. Now, are you ready for perhaps one of the most important questions I'm going to ask you? Why didn't you fix the pictures when you fixed the furniture? And the answer is, you couldn't see them. You didn't have enough light at the time to see that the pictures were crooked. But now with the increase of light you have, you can see that. Do you see how life is supposed to work? We get a little bit of light and then we tidy up. And when we tidy up, we get more light. 
And when we get more light, we see what needs to be fixed, and so we tidy up. That is the simple process of growing grace for grace. And if you do that your whole life, you will receive the fullness eventually. Now, if we take our bearings from section 93, so at verse 12, he doesn't have the fullness. Verse 13, he doesn't have the fullness. Verse 14, he doesn't have the fullness. And then in verse 16, John bore record that he did receive the fullness. Jesus, while a mortal being, hit the top. What event do we pull out of verse 15 that might give us a bearing as to when he may have hit the fullness? Notice verse 15 was his baptism. He's 30 years old. So if we're reading this correctly, Jesus grew grace for grace, and then by the time he hit 30 years old, a man who achieved godhood in premortal life but started over on earth took 30 years to hit that fullness. A man who never hesitated in that gap between what he knew and what he obeyed. Because if he hesitates, he sins. For Jesus, as soon as the light went on, he immediately took a step forward and increased his obedience. Otherwise, he sins and he can't be the atoning one. So he never hesitates. He never holds back. He's moving faster than we're moving. And it took him, the Son of God, 30 years to hit the fullness. I think the point is, there's no way we're going to hit the fullness in our lifetimes. It took a God 30 years at an accelerated pace to hit the fullness. You and I are going to do it much after we die. But there's the process. 2 Nephi chapter 28, verse 30. Here is Nephi describing the simplicity of the way back to our Heavenly Father. For behold, thus saith the Lord God, I will give unto the children of man line upon line, precept upon precept, here a little and there a little. And blessed are those who hearken unto my precept. See, that's me obeying the light that he's given me. Blessed are those who hearken unto my precepts and lend an ear to my counsel, for they shall learn wisdom. Do you see both of our rules in that? If you obey the light you have, you're going to get more light. For unto him that receiveth will I give more. And from them that shall say we have enough, from them shall be taken away even that which they have. In one verse, that's a beautiful description of how salvation works. One step at a time, one line at a time. It's all up to you. But now go to 2 Nephi 31, same author, same book, same concept, verse 20. Here might be the greatest promise recorded in the Scriptures. I love that the Father puts His name on the promise. Normally, if a prophet gives a promise, it's good enough for us. When Lehi says, if you obey, you'll prosper in the land, I'm, I'm fine with that. I'm fine with a Lehi prophet promise. Sometimes Jesus gives a promise. Here the Father puts his name on the promise. Ready? Verse 20. Here's life in one verse. Wherefore, ye must press forward with a steadfastness in Christ, having a perfect brightness of hope and a love of God and of all men. Notice the first two commandments, love God and love men. Wherefore, if ye shall press forward, feasting upon the word of Christ, and endure to the end... 
And the end here seems to be death because no one's going to hit the fullness before we die. If the fullness is the end, it's going to come many years after we die. So the end here has to be death. Wherefore, if you shall press forward, feasting upon the word of Christ and endure to the end, meaning if you're moving forward, grace for grace, line upon line, when you die, thus saith the Father, ye shall have eternal life. You're going to make it. It's absolutely guaranteed. It's almost an invitation also to keep moving. Keep moving. Because if we stop and we say we're good, you're either moving forward or you're moving backwards. So keep going. I think sometimes we look at endure and we think, I'm just going to suffer through it. And I think endure in this context is just what you're saying. We're continually moving forward and trying to get more light. Yeah, we're responding to the light that we have. We're getting better day by day. If you are moving forward grace for grace, however slowly, you're going to hit the fullness. Have hope, have courage. Know that this is the way to the celestial kingdom. It's not leaps and bounds. You don't have to run up the staircase. You go at the pace you can go. You take the light that you've been given. You see what you need to fix in your life. Fix it. Move forward. Get a little bit better today. And then as you take that step, you'll receive more light. Now, there's a phenomenon you need to be ready for. We see this a lot when people join the church, because as I try to get better, I'm going to see all the things I need to fix. I'm going to see what's, what's messy in my room. As the light increases, I'm going to start to see cobwebs, and I'm going to start to see dust that I never saw before. And if you're not careful, if you're not prepared for this, you're going to think that the more you try to get better, you're going to perceive that you're getting worse. And that is not true. What's actually happening is you're gaining light and can see things in your life that need to be improved you didn't see before. That is a concept you need to be prepared for, because if you're not, you're going to be discouraged and you're going to stop growing. The greatest evidence that we are growing is I see things that I need to improve, and I've never really noticed that I needed to fix them. You think back over your life. What do you now see that you didn't see before? There is evidence that you are growing in light. And thus saith the Father, if you're on that process and you're moving forward and you're receiving light— Like Jesus did, thus saith the Father, you shall have eternal life. So have hope, have courage, recognize that you're growing. Salvation is within our reach. You don't have to obey as God obeys. God has light that you don't have. And it's not possible for you to fix what you can't see. Therefore, Perfection is to live up the light you currently have. It's one step ahead. As you receive more light, God will ask you to take the next step. So it's always within reach, but it's ever moving us forward. I call it divine discontent. 
I'm not content where I am, but through this divine discontent, I see the next step. I'm not going to stop moving. It's beautiful. And that is how Jesus obtained his salvation. Jesus came to earth and went through the veil so that he forgot all that fullness that he obtained. And it's a grace for grace, little bit here, little bit there, line upon line. There's always a gap between the light we have and the obedience that we are showing God. So that, I believe, is one of the great gifts of the Doctrine and Covenants, section 93 and grace for grace. And I would suggest to you this is happening all over the world. 99.8% of this planet are not members of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, but the process is still in place for each one of them. This is what's happening in every continent, in every country, with every human being. Anyone who responds to the light that they have will receive more light. And if they're in that process of growing from light to light, then they will make it. At some point, the fullness of the gospel will be presented to them. We ought to be very careful that we not judge others, because the person we condemn might actually be more faithful to the light that they have than we are to the light that we have. We are all in this together. We should help each other and push each other forward, line upon line. You kind of see that in the John 4 narrative where Jesus comes to the Samaritan woman and in the supposed places where everybody has orthodoxy figured out, they want to kill Jesus. He goes to the Samaritans, which the Jews look down on, and at the end of John 4, they recognize him as the Messiah. I sometimes ask the question, what if the Samaritans had more light than the Jews? What if that's the whole point? What if their religion was closer? Now, I didn't live back then, but certainly they saw Jesus for who he was. There probably could be a whole fifth gospel of just what he said to those people that we don't have. And I really think that if we could see as God sees, we would realize that there is spiritual progression all around us in people that we might perhaps condemn as non-spiritual, but they are living up to the light that they have. They are tidying their room and eventually they will get more light. The process will continue for them just like it continues for people of the covenant. Yeah, this idea of grace It's reciprocal. There's a great Latter-day Saint that wrote a book called Relational Grace, the Reciprocal and Binding Covenant of Karis, and his name is Brent Schmidt. Now, if you don't want to read his book, we'll go ahead and link a video in the show notes where you can just watch a video where he talks about this idea that charis, that word that's translated as grace, isn't what today modern Christianity thinks that it is. He, He covers and goes through how grace was changed through many Christian thinkers, Karis became something that was just freely given as a confession of faith. I confess Jesus, therefore I'm saved. And so what Brent Schmidt does is he goes into the roots, because he's a Greek scholar, he goes into the roots of how the Greeks viewed Karis, and then he goes into how the gospel writers use it, and then he goes into the Book of Mormon, and it's reciprocal. I'll just give you a short example. If I become Bryce's apprentice, let's say he is a blacksmith, the charis that I bring him, the gift that I bring him is my labor. I come to him and say, Bryce, show me the way, teach me how to be a blacksmith. And the charis that he gives me is the craft. 
And over time, Bryce and I develop a reciprocal relationship where I bring him gifts and he brings me gifts. And I love this because if you read section 93, it even talks about this. Look in verse 28. He that keepeth his commandments receiveth truth and light until he is glorified in truth and knoweth all things. Verse 36, the glory of God is intelligence, or in other words, light and truth. In essence, one of the things that we learn in this section is that that is the kind of person that God is, is he is full of light and truth, and he wants to develop and cultivate a reciprocal relationship with you, where you bring him charis, and he gives you charis, and it's reciprocal. It's everything Bryce talked about, of going up the ladder, going up the steps, and in a lot of ways, it's kind of like parenting. I love that analogy of the blacksmith, Mike, because if you come to me and say, I know nothing about metalwork, I know nothing, I'm going to give you a very simple task. Well, can you do this? Will you do this for me? Right. And if you do it, then I'm going to say, well, now do this. I'm going to give you one more task. So you're bringing me your labor, your effort, your obedience to the task, and then I'm going to show you the next skill set, the next thing to learn. And over time, grace for grace, eventually you will learn all that I can teach. I will have given you all the light that I have. Now, not in one day. There's no way on that day one of apprenticeship I can say, here's everything you need to know about being a blacksmith. But it's one step at a time, one project at a time, one skill at a time. Why isn't salvation that same thing? God is our master. He's our mentor. Yes. And we are his apprentice. And as we get good at one thing, he's going to show us the next thing we need to improve. It reminds me, Bryce, of that question King Benjamin asked where he said, how can you know the master that you've never served? He's driving at this same idea. It's all over the place in the Book of Mormon. This is such a refreshing doctrine that all of us should say, I can do this. I can. Salvation is within my reach. Today, I just have to do the things I know I can and should do. I'm just going to reach a little bit beyond where I'm at and get a little bit better. You do that for your whole existence, you will eventually hit the fullness. It's absolutely guaranteed. So I think 19 is important verse. I give into these sayings that you may understand and know how to worship and know what you worship, that you may come unto the Father in my name and in due time receive of his fullness. Two main things are on the table in this section. Knowing who God is and how to approach him, which Bryce has fleshed out beautifully. I think another important thing to understand is who man is. Now, before we get to who man is, Early Christians really struggled with the idea of an embodied Jesus. How can Christ be embodied, but how can he be everywhere? And this ties in to the beginning of section 88 about light. And if you remember, right around verses 6 through 13, it talks about how the Lord is the light of the sun and the moon, and he's in all things. And even prophets in our dispensation have talked about things like, He's in the plants, the process by which plants convert the sun's energy into fruit. He is in all these things. So if you go to verse 8 of section 93, it says, Therefore, in the beginning, the word was, for he was the word, even the messenger of salvation, the light and the redeemer of the world, the spirit of truth, who came into the world because the world was made by him, and in him was the life of men and the light of men. The worlds were made by him, men were made by him, all things were made by him, and through him and of him. 
In other words, he is the light that is in all of these things. He's also the building block that gave them life. Yes. He's the light, the life in everything. Early Christians really struggled with the idea of an embodied Jesus. What do we do with the narratives of a resurrected Jesus? And the other thing they struggled with was, what do we do with an omnipotent, omniscient, omnipresent God? How can God be everywhere? Another thing that they struggled with was the relationship between Jesus and the Father. And so for hundreds of years, Christians through the ages struggled with kind of hammering this idea out. There's great books on this, but big picture, they came up with this idea that the ousios, which I, whenever I say ousios, it's a Greek word that just means substance, but I like to say the word ooze because it's, I think that word comes from that word. The idea was that the father and the son were of the same ousios. And I like that. I think that they are in the sense that they're both full of light and truth. And they struggled with this because that idea that they were homoousius became interpreted to mean that perhaps that same substance meant that they were the same person. And that developed over time. And I think in section 93 and in section 88, we as Latter-day Saints can say they are of the same substance in the sense that they are both full of light and truth, but they are distinct individuals. And that sets us apart from traditional Christianity. And maybe that doesn't matter to you, but it did to the Christians of the third and fourth century. I mean, they fought wars over this and they struggled over this and they tried to cultivate a discussion to understand how can Christ be embodied, but how can he be everywhere? And I think section 88, the beginning, and these verses give us the answer. And that's that the light of Christ is in and through all things, and that's how he can be everywhere. But we believe that he is embodied, that he's resurrected. And so I think that's important to kind of flesh out and understand. I want to talk a little bit about verse 8, where it says that he's the word, even the messenger of salvation. That's a quotation from John, the Gospel of John, chapter 1, verse 1. Now, I'm just going to interject a little bit here. Doctrine and Covenants 93 isn't quoting John 1. They're both quoting the book of John the Baptist. John the Beloved is probably quoting John the Baptist, and section 93 is an insert of that book itself. So both John 1 and section 93 are quoting the same source. Yeah, I mean, if you really want to pull this thread further— and, and this is Raymond Brown, a, a great Catholic scholar on the book of John, probably my favorite. And a lot of people would say the the Jedi of the book of John, his belief, and there's a lot that, that have this contention, is that the first 18 verses of John 1 was actually a Christian hymn, and that it was sung, and that it was around this group of what were called the Johannine Christians, and that this became something that just was part of their worship service. This hymn was so important to them. And so, you know, I don't know. I wasn't there. And I just love the way it sounds. This is John 1.1, and arche en hologos, kai hologos en prostonteon, kai theos en hologos. My translation, in the beginning, an arche. Now, arche is the head. In the Hebrew, it's beroshit in Rosh is the head in Hebrew, so Bereshit is in the head. And so Joseph Smith's going to take this and say, in the beginning of the grand councils, at the head councils of the pre-earth councils. But my translation, once again, is in the beginning there was the Logos, which is translated as word, but Logos is a theologically loaded word. And the Logos was towards or before God, and the Logos 
was God. That's my translation. Now, the picture I have in my head is Robert Barrett's picture of the pre-earth council. And you have the father on the throne and you have Jesus right by him. And that's kind of the vision that John has in Revelation where he sees the one on the throne and then he sees Jesus. And that's kind of like Lehi's vision. If you go back to chapter one or first Nephi, he sees the one on the throne and one likened to the father. That's kind of what I see where we see prostontheon. Prost can mean a lot of things. In this sense, it's towards or before. I get in all the grammatical stuff in the show notes if you want to nerd out and read this stuff. I really like this because he is the word or what others call the messenger of salvation. Now, I'm going to give you uh, President Nelson's quote, and it's in a talk called Jesus Christ, Our Master, and More. He said, under the direction of the Father, Jesus bore the responsibility of creator. His title was the word, spelled with a capital W. In the Greek, it was logos or divine expression. It was another name for the master. That terminology may seem strange to us, but it was so reasonable. We use words to convey our expression to others. So Jesus was the word or expression of his father to the world. I love that on so many levels because there's places in John where Jesus says, if you've seen me, you've seen the father. And one of the beauties of that is Jesus came to reveal the Father. I'm here to show you the Father. So if Jesus was kind and generous and forgiving, that means the Father is kind and generous and forgiving. So often we see Jesus as this compassionate, loving being, and we're afraid of the Father. But the Savior is saying, no, don't you understand? Everything that I am, the Father is as well. So he came to teach us about the Father. We know more about the Father than many of us realize because we get to study the Son. And that's the beauty of the Doctrine and Covenants is we get the actual words from the Savior, and it paints this picture of this kind but just being. Well, that's what God is. He is revealing the Father. It's beautiful. It's beautiful. It really is. I love this translation. Now, it's not it's not perfect Greek. That's just my opinion of looking at this, but I love it, and I love this man. His name's Hugh Nibley, and this is his translation of John 1.1. In the beginning was the Logos, and he's going to call that counsel or discussion. And the Logos was in the presence of God. So his proston theon he's taking to as was in the presence of God. And all things were done according to it. Now, that's not in the Greek. But I know where he's going with this. What he's saying is that this discussion was going to be enacted. And then he says, the question arises, if we decide to do things God's way, will not all discussion cease? How could there be a discussion with God? Who would ever disagree with him? And that's just a great question. And in the show notes, we put so much of his commentary on this verse, and I'm just going to kind of abbreviate it. But essentially what he's saying is that's the nature of who God is, that we reason with him. Logos can mean reason. It can mean counsel. It can mean a reckoning. It can mean sitting down and looking at things collectively. And essentially his contention is that as the logos, as the expression, it was a discussion and it was a counsel. And I really like that as I've thought about my prayers in my life and how I've tried to live my life. I see a divine discussion taking place. And so I love the word logos because to me, it's participatory. 
and it is reason. The word logos can mean reason or it can mean logic. That's where we get the word logic in English. And it was such an important word to the Greeks. And I will say this, I really think anarche and hologos is more than was in the beginning was God, but at the head was God. At the head meaning at the head of the table of discussion and that we were invited to this. And I think as Latter-day Saints, this is where we sit in this ancient tradition because we say things like, there was a council. We existed before we came to this earth. We were spirits, certainly, but we existed And this was participatory, and it was a council. And I think as Latter-day Saints, it fits right into the Greek of John 1.1. And we shouldn't end there. Just because it was participatory and premortal life, why would it suddenly not be on earth? It is still participatory. We find that all throughout the Doctrine and Covenants. Back in section 45, the Lord said, Come ye unto it, and with him that cometh, I will reason as with men in days of old. And I will show unto you my strong reasonings. He says later in the verse, Wherefore, hearken, and I will reason with you. And I will speak unto you and prophesy as unto men in days of old. He says again in 49, I will reason with them. That thought is flowing all throughout the Doctrine and Covenants, that this is a participatory council like it was in the premortal life. That hasn't changed. I got to do one more, section 50, which is about, you know, the Spirit and how we interact with the Spirit. He says, and now come, saith the Lord, by the Spirit unto the elders of this church, and let us reason together that you may understand. Let us reason, even as a man reasoneth one with another face to face. Now, when a man reasoneth, he is understood of men, because he reasoneth as a man. Even so will I, the Lord, reason with you that you may understand." That flows all throughout the Doctrine and Covenants, and now we're seeing it in a grand stage here in section 93. This is beautiful. Now, it's May 1833. Historically, we are a couple months away from fire. Everything's going to be on fire in Missouri. In July of 1833, we are going to face a lot of trial. What if this revelation came at a time right before the storm? knowing what and who you worship, knowing that we've got to go through this. What if this was given as a gift of light to go through a period of darkness? I love the timing of section 93. I see this as a a crowning revelation. This one in conjunction with 88, right before the storm. Yeah. So once we've kind of seen the glory and the aura of Jesus, oh, Jesus was with God in the premortal life. That elevates him to a higher status. Jesus was with God. This man that came to earth and did all these miracles was with God in the beginning. Yes, he was. Jesus's status is elevated because he was with God in the premortal life. He repeats that in verse 21. Verily I say unto you, I was in the beginning with the Father. Now watch. This is absolute brilliant scripture here. The Father is now going to take our hand and elevate our status by saying in verse 23, ye were also in the beginning with the Father. You were there too. Talk about logos. Talk about all these premortal things. You were there. All of you were there. Now, tell me what that does to humanity. Tell me what that does to you individually. 
I was there with God. This whole thing is a combined effort for my good. That one sentence, you were in the beginning with the Father. He just grabs humanity and he pulls it up out of the dust. We are divine beings. And I love that the very next verse is that truth is knowledge of things as they are, as they were, and as they are to come. Meaning, if you don't understand that man was in the beginning, that you have been and are and will be, you don't understand what is true. And I love that Jacob, in Jacob 4, adds the word really. Truth is knowledge of things as they really are, as they really were. You were in the beginning. You are part of this whole process. This whole thing was created with you as a participant. And a lot of this stuff was lost. Origen believed in the pre-earth life, you know, 184 AD. But by the time we get to the third and fourth century, a lot of that stuff's lost. And so the tension in Christianity was essentially, well, what is man? And Bryce, some people thought we're horrible. We're these awful people. I mean, that's going to be Augustine. Augustine's going to come out and say, man is just crud. We are so awful. And then others like the Pelagians, Pelagius comes out and says, no, man is good. Man is inherently good. And so I really do, when I teach teenagers, I'll throw, I will start section 93 and just ask them the question, what are we? Are we inherently good? Are we inherently evil or something else? And just to generate a discussion, because especially when you're in front of teenagers, if you can generate a discussion and then you can go to the scriptures looking for the answer, what I try to train young people to do is to go to the scriptures to try to find these things. And section 93 is really addressing these fundamental ideas because you see, Pelagius lost the fight. We don't have a lot of Pelagius's writings because history, well, he's the loser in history. And so, well, what is history other than a lot of times it's the record of the victors. And so Augustine's theology becomes orthodoxy in the fallen state of man, the depravity of man. And it's it's amplified, but it's basically just warmed up Augustinian theology later by Calvin and others that talk about the utter depravity of man. And I can just imagine Joseph sitting in that Presbyterian church, hearing some of these sermons, and then going home and just puzzling and thinking, are we all depraved? I mean, certainly he saw sin, but I think I see in Joseph in his writings and his sermons the goodness of man. I see it throughout the Book of Mormon, and I see it in section 93. And so 93 addresses these where it says, verse 29, man was in the beginning with God, intelligence or the light of truth was not created or made, neither indeed can be. Verse 30, all truth is independent in that sphere in which God has placed it to act for itself as all intelligence also. Otherwise, there is no existence. So to me, verse 30 says that truth is independent to act for itself, and that piece of truth is in you, so you're independent. But then you also have verse 36 and 37. We have this, this truth or this light. The glory of God is intelligence, or in other words, light and truth. Light and truth forsake the evil one. And then verse 38, every spirit of man was innocent in the beginning. And God, having redeemed man from the fall, men became again 
in their infant state innocent before God. The way I'm interpreting verse 38 is this, that in the beginning when my spirit was made in the pre-earth life, it was innocent. But something happened. During my pre-mortal journey, something between when I was born as a spirit entity and when I was born into mortality, I needed to become again in my infant state as a mortal innocent before God. And my contention is, is that I made mistakes, that I fell short. Harmatia, to miss the mark. That's the Greek word for sin, which we've kind of, especially in Christian history, they've taken sin and they've twisted it to the point where harmatia or missing the mark has become, you're this depraved, awful person. If I'm at archery school and I'm missing the mark, it doesn't mean I'm a bad archer. I'm just missing the mark. I need to keep practicing. We're back to grace for grace. Well, we all mess up. We all harmatia. We all miss the mark. So what happens is the Savior's atonement goes back into pre-earth life and cleanses me from any mistakes I may have made. Now, this may be a new concept to some, but think about this. Clearly, sin existed in the pre-earth life because the adversary rebelled. He's kind of like the poster child for going all the way when it comes to sin, pushing the gas pedal all the way to the metal. And between the adversary and the rest of us, we were missing marks. Which is typical of every stage of our progression until we receive a fullness of light, we're going to miss the mark. There's always going to be a gap between what we know and what we do. So it's so cool. So I don't know the answer, but this is kind of where I sit. I was born innocent, but because I have this light or truth in me, because we come from God and we have that light in him, section 88, DNC 93 verse 30, that that's put in me. I want to do good. I'm born in my infant state, innocent before God when I'm born. And I believe that my goodness or my badness is going to come down to this dance between like my choices and my environment. They both kind of play these roles. And as I make these choices, I determine where I sit in life. Can I just piggyback on what you just said, Mike? Because what I want to point out is that God, our Heavenly Father, is a God of do-overs and start-overs and new beginnings. What he's saying in verse 38 is, you came into the premortal life and that was a do-over, and you were innocent in the beginning. And then, yes, sin entered into our lives in premortal life. But when we come to earth, we get another do-over. So birth into mortality is another do-over. There was this scene in John chapter 9 where his disciples asked Jesus, who did sin, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Such a good question. Meaning, how could this man have sinned so that he was born blind? Well, clearly they understood that sin was part of our premortal life, and they're wondering are we being condemned in this life because of something we did in premortal life? And, and what we hear in section 93 is, no, everyone comes into this earth and they're given a do-over. We start over. We're, we're made clean again. We are redeemed and we become again infant. Now, let me just continue that. So I was born into premortal life. I was innocent. I was born into mortality. I was again made innocent. Don't you now see the same pattern when you are born into the kingdom of God through baptism, you are again made innocent. And therein is the pattern of our Heavenly Father. I would suggest that if you worthily entered the temple, you were again made innocent. 
every time we covenant with God and move into a new stage of our existence, even if it's partaking of the sacrament, if we covenant with Heavenly Father and we're moving forward, it becomes a renewal, a refreshing. God is a God of do-overs and start-overs. We're born again. We are born-again Christians every time our eyes are opened again, right? Many, multiple times, not once, many times. Okay, so let's go back to this interesting concept. And if what I'm about to say is confusing, then skip it. This is not an essential doctrine to understand in order to go to the celestial kingdom. But there is something to what he's teaching us in verse 29, that intelligence was not created or made, neither indeed can be. Our doctrine is that my birth into premortality was not my beginning. I don't know how spirits are born. Did Heavenly Mother carry us in her womb? I don't know. But at some point, I was born into premortal life. I was born, and Heavenly Father and Heavenly Mother became my parents, and I was their spirit child. But that was not my beginning. We believe that, yes, we lived in heaven before we were born on earth, but we also believe we existed before we were born into heaven. And the term we use for that, whatever it is, and we know very little about it, the term we use is intelligence. I was an intelligence before I was born into the premortal life, before I was born to Heavenly Father. In other words, Heavenly Father didn't make me. He created my spirit body and brought that intelligent into that spirit body. He created my physical body. He created this earth. So yes, he is our creator, but in one sense, he did not create me. I existed before I was born into the premortal life. Now, why that's important is this. If he created me, then it would be his fault if I were bad. Is it God's fault that Satan rebelled against him in premortal life? Did God just make Satan an evil spirit? If that's the case, then how could Satan be punished for his evil deeds? He was simply doing what he was created to do. But we all know that Satan has a choice in this. And that choice means that that part of him chose that God didn't choose for him. That verse 30 really does exonerate the Father where it says truth is independent in that sphere in which God has placed it. It has existed, does exist, and will. You and I have never not existed. We are co-eternal with God, and that should help elevate the dignity of mankind. We are not from the slums. We are from eternity. In case somebody thinks that Bryce is, you know, far off the reservation, this is Joseph Fielding Smith. He says, some of our writers have endeavored to explain what an intelligence is, but he says, we can't really do that. You know, we just don't know. He says, the Lord has just fragmentarily revealed this stuff. But then he says, we know that there's something called intelligence, which has always existed. It is the real eternal part of man which was not created or made. This intelligence combined with the spirit 
constitutes a spiritual identity or individual. Now, Joseph's going to take this idea and talk about bara, that word creation or create in the Hebrew of in the beginning when God created, because the early Christians are going to say that God made everything ex nihilo, everything out of nothing. And Joseph Smith's contention is, no, the Lord is organizing, that he's shaping. And bara can mean to shape like a potter with the clay. And this unorganized matter, the tohu wabohu, this unorganized chaotic stuff of creation, God is going to shape it and create a cosmos. And so I like this idea. It does exonerate the Father because if God made everything out of nothing, then all suffering, all evil is like Bryce said, that's God's fault. And so this exonerates him, but it also puts the onus on us. If we're independent individuals, and we're in this space, verse 30 says, we are to act for ourselves. It's an invitation for us to get going, to get busy. And I also think it also helps us realize that others are going to act in their sphere. And so as we, it's like the bumper cars, as we're bumping against each other, we just got to give each other some space and realize we're all kind of figuring this stuff out. But this is radical theology for Joseph to teach these ideas because it was swimming upstream. This was contrary to what every Christian was thinking about creation. And he's 27 years old. Yeah. And he's laying out this incredible doctrine. So Joseph is teaching us who God is. And then he's adding who we are. There are three things inside of me. There is a physical body made here on earth. Thank you, Jetty and Tracy Dunford. I appreciate all that I received in this physical body. Inside that physical body is a spirit born to Heavenly Father and Heavenly Mother in premortal life. Thank you, Heavenly Father and Heavenly Mother, for contributing that spirit. But inside of that spirit is an intelligence that has always existed, cannot have been made or created. And that intelligence, combined with my spirit, combined with my body, is what makes me who I am. Now, each one of those have a contribution. My body has certainly contributed to my being. My spirit has certainly contributed to my being. But I am an eternal being. And I love verse 31. Here is the agency of man and the condemnation of man. You cannot blame God. You are an eternal being, and it is up to you what your eternity looks like. You have always existed, and you will always exist. Now, in what state your eternal existence finds itself depends on the choices that you make, not the choices that God makes. He is your partner, your friend, your father, but you must make those choices. Man is independent in that sphere in which God has placed it. That's a cool concept. That's way good. Okay, so now we're going to talk a little bit about uh, 24 and 28, those verses. And truth is knowledge of things as they are and as they were and as they are to come. That's DNC 93, 24. The Hebrew word, emet, it's three characters, aleph, mem, tau. And it's the, the first character, the last character, and then the mem, the ocean, the sea of chaos of the present. These characters represent time. They represent many things, but Aleph can represent the past. The Tau is the gate to the future and the Mem is the present. And so encapsulated in that word for truth is that idea that truth is knowledge of things as they are 
and as they were and as they are to come. If you take away the Aleph and all you have is the Mem and the Tau, you have the word for death. If you take away that first character, and this is in the show notes, you can look at this and see other people that have talked about this, but look in verse 25. Whatsoever is more or less than this, more or less than the truth, is the spirit of that wicked one. I just find that fascinating. That's just good stuff. And sometimes it's not, I mean, it's not radical. Sometimes it's just a little bit more or a little bit less, right? And so he takes something that's true and then he twists it a little bit and there's the falsehood. So truth is knowledge. That's why I love Jacob's edition of the word really. Truth is knowledge of things as they really are, not the twist or the perception of them, things as they really are. It's so good. Now, the father wants to give us all that he has. He wants to make us like him. Man can become like God. Joseph's going to lay a lot of this stuff out later in Nauvoo, 1844. But look at verse 28. He that keepeth his commandments receiveth truth and light until he is glorified in truth and knoweth all things. This is also talked about in section 76. What I want to throw out is this idea of theosis or divinization or deification, the idea that man can become like God. This was taught by the ancient Christians. It was taught in the Bible. Latter-day Saints are attacked, and they're told, you're not Christian because you believe this. Now, I think we can be extreme, and sometimes our enemies will, you know, they'll make fun of us and say, oh, are you going to have your own worlds? And I, I always try to tone that way down, and I say things like, the Father wants to give us all that he has. He wants to make us like him. And so, in the show notes, you can read some of the scriptures. There's so many good ones. One of them is Matthew 5:48. Be therefore perfect even as your Father which is in heaven is perfect. I mean that's just a beautiful invitation to be finished or to be complete. Or John 17:11 where Jesus gives the great intercessory prayer where he prays that his followers may be one and that they may be perfect in one. And that idea of to be one is right out of Deuteronomy 6. The Savior is asking that we be one with him and the Father. So some beautiful passages. Romans 8, this is Paul. The Spirit itself beareth witness with our spirit that we are the children of God. And then if children, well then heirs, heirs of God and joint heirs with Christ. If it so be that we suffer with him, that we may be glorified together, Romans 8, 16 and 17. So it's in Paul, it's in Jesus's statements, it's in the last book of the New Testament, in the book of Revelation chapter 3, John writes, to him that overcometh will I grant to sit with me in my throne, even as I overcame, and I'm sat down with my father in his throne. 1 John 3, 2, we are the sons of God. And it does not yet appear what we shall be, but we know this, that when he shall appear, meaning Jesus, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. Many, many more passages in the New Testament reflect this sentiment. It's beautifully laid out in the Book of Mormon. And my testimony is, it's just right here in verse 28, that they will, the saints will be glorified in truth, and they will know all things. I love this one from the Book of Mormon, just to throw one Book of Mormon in. Notice how it's tied to that grace for grace process. This is where Alma is answering questions from Zeezrom in Ammoniah. 
This is Alma chapter 12, verse 10. He that will harden his heart, the same receiveth the lesser portion of the word. And he that will not harden his heart, to him is given the greater portion of the word, until it is given unto him to know the mysteries of God, until he know them in full. It was clearly an expectation. It was clearly a doctrine known in Book of Mormon days that as you grow grace for grace, line upon line, you can move forward until you know all that God knows. You can know the mysteries of God in full. I think this was lost in part because of Augustinian theology, of the depravity of man. How could something so depraved be like God? But it's in the New Testament. The early Christians taught it from Justin to Theophilus to Cyprian. Cyprian says, we have not been made gods from the beginning, but at first merely man, but then at length gods. He also says, what Christ is, we Christians shall be if we imitate Christ. Origen said this, the incarnation of Jesus takes place so that I too might become God to the extent that he became man. Many early Christians believed that Jesus descended to become like man to pull us up where he is. I think the invitation is once again to know who you are. The big picture of section 93 is know who God is, know what you worship and how and who this person is, but then also understand who you are. I think one day we'll look back and we'll look and see how much we didn't know. And I think if we could see really what people were and the light that's in them, we would be different. And I think that's an invitation. I think the Savior's trying to say, be better. See people for who they are and know that that light is in them. It's just a beautiful teaching. I think it's important for me maybe because just growing up where I grew up, so many people told me that I wasn't Christian because I believed in some of these things in a preexistence or that we could become like God. And I remember not knowing these verses in the Bible and not knowing Christian history and not having read it, and I didn't have an answer. And certainly we are not giving all the answers in this podcast, but we're at least pulling on some threads that if this is something that interests you, you can then go pick up their writings and read them for yourself. And so let that be an invitation to you. And one of those that caught that concept from the Bible himself was C.S. Lewis. C.S. Lewis reading the Bible came to that same conclusion, and that conclusion changed the way he treated other beings. So he said, it may be possible for each to think too much of his own potential glory hereafter. It is hardly possible for him to think too often or too deeply about that of his neighbor. The load or weight or burden of my neighbor's glory should be laid on my back, a load so heavy that only humility can carry it, and the backs of the proud will be broken. It is a serious thing to live in a society of possible gods and goddesses, to remember that the dullest and most uninteresting person you can talk to may one day be a creature which, if you saw it now, you would be strongly tempted to worship. It is in the light of these overwhelming possibilities. It is with the awe and the circumspection proper to them that we should conduct all our dealings with one another, all friendships, all loves, all play, all politics. There are no ordinary citizens. There are no ordinary people. You have never talked to a mere mortal. Nations, cultures, arts, civilizations, these are mortal, and their life is to ours as the life of a gnat. It is with immortals that we joke. 
work, marry, snub, and exploit. He caught the concept of the destiny of man, the eternal destiny of man, and his conclusion was then we ought to treat each other differently. Knowing who we were in pre-mortal life, knowing who we have the potential to become, we should treat each other that way here on earth. So that's the invitation of section 93, and I love that. Now, section 93 ends with an interesting twist on that. If we are God's children that he's been nurturing and nourishing through this life, then we need to take care of those little ones that he sends into our families. So he starts talking about getting a do-over. You are innocent again when you come into the world. But the wicked one, verse 39, the wicked one cometh and taketh away light and truth through disobedience from the children of man and because of the tradition of their fathers. But I have commanded you to bring up your children in light and truth. Teach your children the process of grace for grace. Encourage them to obey and receive more light. You are commanded to bring up your children in light and truth. Now watch what he does next. He is going to rebuke all three members of the first presidency and one of the presiding bishops for a very specific error that they made. Now, Joseph was a tremendous president. Sidney Rigdon was doing well in his capacity as first counselor in the first presidency. And yet the Lord rebukes them for what was happening with their families. Starting in verse 41, this is Frederick G. Williams, second counselor in the first presidency. Verse 42, you have not taught your children light and truth. End of verse 42, this is the cause of your affliction. Your problem is because of what's happening in your family. Therefore, verse 43, set in order your own house. There are many things that are not right in your house. That, by suggestion here, is the highest priority of the second counselor in the first presidency. Set in order your own house. What's happening with your children is more important than what's happening with the saints in the church. Now, you have a duty to minister to the needs of the church as your calling would indicate, but your highest priority is to set in order your own house. So after he rebukes the second counselor, verse 44, watch him rebuke the first counselor, Sidney Rigdon. And the Lord says, he has not kept the commandments concerning his children. Therefore, now I love the next word, first set in order thy house. You see what he's implying? The work of the first presidency is secondary. I love what Joy Jones said in her conference talk recently about why we call the organization of children primary. It's called primary because they are our primary responsibility. The first counselor in the first presidency is told to first Set in order thy house. And then the Lord turns to the prophet himself, Joseph Smith Jr., verse 47. You have not kept the commandments and must needs stand rebuked before the Lord. 
Was he violating some rules of the first presidency? Was he not following prophet rules? No, the Lord says in verse 48, your family must needs repent and forsake some things. Do you see the emphasis here? Family first. Everyone's duty is to raise their children in light and truth. That does not compare to anything that we do in the church. It is far more important. And yet we find ourselves, some some of us, we find ourselves tempted to spend unusual amounts of time away from the family to do a secondary duty in the church. Not that it's not important. It's just not as important. Joseph, your family needs to repent. And then notice verse 49. Here's the Lord waving his arms. What I say unto one, I say unto all. There's no question we should build the Lord's kingdom, but we all need to understand that our highest priority is raising our children in light and truth. So just one more, verse 50, is one of the presiding bishops. Remember, we have two bishops now, one in Kirtland, one in Missouri, and the Lord speaks to Newell K. Whitney, one of the bishops, and he says, Newell K. Whitney hath need to be chastened and set in order his family and see that they are more diligent and concerned at home. I think that phrase needs to be imprinted on all of our minds. We need to be more diligent and concerned at home. So it is very significant to me that in a section that pushes our minds into the majesty of what man is, what man has been, and what man can become, and this process of growing grace for grace so that I know all things and have a fullness of light and truth, and the Lord pauses before the end and says, please don't forget those little ones that I'm sending to your homes. So good. Thank you for spending your time with us today. Section 93, know God, know who you are, be with your family. What a great message. And we appreciate all the positive feedback. People have been so positive. We just can't thank you enough for sharing uh, this podcast. We will see you next time when we cover section 94 through 97. Talking Scripture is not an official production of The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. The opinions expressed in this podcast are Mike and Bryce's opinions only. We refer you to official church sources and the church website to clarify any doctrinal questions.